Welcome to Anchor. Great to see you here this morning. My name's Matt, lead pastor here at Anchor Church, and just wanted to extend my welcome to Brad's. It's great that so many of you could be here this morning. As Brad mentioned, we're kicking off a series uh, on the Holy Spirit this morning, seven weeks. I'm excited about what this series is going to look like and going to bring to our church. So why don't you join me as I pray, because that's an important thing now as we preach on the Holy Spirit, that we ask Him to do His work in transforming our lives for His glory. So let's pray together. God, we acknowledge that right now you are present here, not because we magically invited you here, because this is your church. Indeed, you invite us through the call of the gospel. But we acknowledge that your presence, by your Spirit, that you are here, that you are real, that we can know you, and more than that, that we can experience you. And so, God, we pray as we come before you in your word this morning that you might make us acutely aware of your presence, of your voice, that you address us in the scriptures, that you would help us to be people who are open to your transforming work in our hearts and in our lives. And God, we pray that now as we kick off this series on the Holy Spirit, that what you might do in seven weeks' time would be an extraordinary and powerful work that only you can accomplish by your power, by your Spirit. God, where there has been ignorance, where there has been a lack of faith and unbelief, where there has been a willful covering of the Spirit's ministry, God, would you transform? Would you give us fresh eyes to see this again today for the next seven weeks? We ask that you would work powerfully in our midst as we journey through the Scriptures together to get a better understanding of who you are in the face of your Holy Spirit. Spirit, I pray right now that you might lead us into truth, for that is your ministry, your work, that you would guide me as I speak and guard me from error, that as the scriptures are laid bare this morning, that you might point us, as you do, towards Jesus, that we would worship him again today. And so we sit humbly under your word, and we pray that you would do your thing. We ask it in Jesus' strong name, and those who agreed said... Amen. I don't know if you've seen any of the Star Wars movies. I was a bit of a Star Wars fan growing up, and I didn't particularly like it all that much, but I, I kind of got into it because my two youth group leaders liked Star Wars, and I admired them and wanted to be just like them. And so everything that they did was about Star Wars, including just quoting Star Wars left, right, and center. Like, we would... We would um, you know, being in a conversation with someone and uh, someone might get caught, for example, doing something that they weren't supposed to do and they would just employ the force. They would, say, they would say, this is not happening right now. You did not see this. It's a, it's a little quote from the Star Wars movie as Obi-Wan flies into this town. He's got two droids, C-3PO and R2-D2 in the back of his ship and the stormtroopers walk up and he says, these are not the droids you're looking for. And the stormtrooper says, these are not the droids we're looking for. Move along. The Force. This is weird concept in Star Wars. In fact, Obi-Wan Kenobi says, the Force is what gives a Jedi his power. It's an energy field created by all living things. It surrounds us 
and penetrates us and it binds the galaxy together. In fact, the force which is used by both um, the the good side of the force, the, the, the Jedi and the dark side of the force, the Lord Sith and all the Darth Vader and his evil minions, when something happens, there is an unbalance in the force and the Jedi need to bring this balance back together. But what you notice throughout Star Wars is that no one begins to talk to the Force. No one's in relationship with the Force. No one, the Force doesn't have a personality. The Force is just this thing, this, this impersonal, dynamic thing that exists. A very different it is from the Holy Spirit, but in reality, our understanding of the Holy Spirit sometimes doesn't get much deeper than our understanding of Star Wars and the Force. And so my hope is that in the next six weeks as we walk through this journey of getting a deeper understanding of the Spirit, we would move beyond this idea that this, we've got this kind of Star Wars-like thing working in us to a deep personal understanding of who God has revealed Himself to be. I think this series is crucial. It's vitally necessary for a number of reasons. The first is... We have largely ignored the Holy Spirit and His ministry in our lives and in our church. I don't know if you've heard this type of reasoning, but it's, it goes something like this. It says that the Spirit does not glorify Himself. Instead, He glorifies the Son and glorifies the Father. And rather than having a ministry that would point a spotlight upon Himself, the Holy Spirit acts like a spotlight that draws your attention away from Himself onto the Father and the Son. Now, that's true. John 16, 14 says that the Spirit's ministry is to point us to Jesus, to spotlight Jesus, to help us make much of Jesus. Yes, that's true. But the reality is that many people have taken that verse and that line of arguing to say and relegate the Holy Spirit to a ministry of insignificance that he's not important. But as we will see as we walk through this series, the Spirit of God has his own unique role and plan in God's purposes. That he is co-equal with the Father and the Son, to be worshipped along with them. In fact, that book that Brad mentioned earlier, Forgotten God, which I recommend everyone gets and reads if you haven't, Francis Chan says this about the Holy Spirit. He says, from my perspective, the Holy Spirit is tragically neglected and for all practical purposes, forgotten. You know, we do that in our own lives individually as we ignore, as we shun the Spirit's ministry of conviction of sin his purifying work of making us more like Jesus, his empowering work of sending us on mission, his work of gifting us with gifts to edify and build up the body of Christ. We, we do that. We do that as a corporate gathering all the time. You know, one of the reasons I think we've done that is because we live in this world that is a product of the Enlightenment, that denies any sense of the miraculous or the supernatural. And so the church and Christians, we've kind of got a little bit embarrassed about the miracles of Jesus, about the virgin birth, about the resurrection and about the Holy Spirit because the reality is it's hard to explain. It's hard to explain these things to a world that has no category for the supernatural and the miraculous. And so it's easier for us to just ignore him, ignore his work and pretend that he doesn't exist. The church has tragically neglected the ministry of the Spirit. The problem with that is, is that the church desperately needs 
the ministry of the Spirit. We desperately need the work of the Spirit in our lives. And that's the second reason why this series is vitally important. The church is irrelevant. Irrelevant. When we're a body that is built upon our own gifts and strengths and power, what we desperately need is not more strategies and not more planning and not more gifted people, but what we desperately need as a church is the power of the Holy Spirit to work in and through us, to transform lives, to make us more like Jesus. So let me ask you this question. And if you read the blog that I wrote this week, this is the question that I started with. It's a hypothetical question. right? So I don't believe this can happen. But this is the question. What would happen to you if God was to take his Holy Spirit away from you? What would happen to you if God were to take the Spirit of God away from you? Now, I say that's hypothetical because in Ephesians 4.30, He is the seal. In Ephesians 1.21, He is the guarantee of our salvation. But what would happen if, if God took the Spirit of God away from you? What would happen? Before you just jump to answer that question quickly, think about that. What would happen? And if the answer is, even if that's not the answer that comes out of your mouth, but it, even if the answer in reality is, you know what, I don't think much would change, then something has gone horribly wrong. If we continue to live this life and the Spirit of God does not change us, does not act in power, then something has gone horribly wrong. We desperately need the Spirit of God, if anything lasting, if anything of eternal significance, if any fruit is going to come from what God is doing here, it comes because the power of the Holy Spirit has been at work in our midst. And so that's the second reason why I believe this series is important. And the third is that we've become quite reactionary when it comes to the teaching of the Holy Spirit. We become reactionary. And what I mean by that is we've what we've done is rather than allowing the scriptures to speak authoritatively on this issue, we've sought to form our beliefs, our practices and our understanding in reaction to something that we believe is unhealthy. Right? And so in many ways, the, the evangelical reformed camp and tribe have looked at what's happened in the charismatic and the Pentecostal movement and said, well, we're not like that. We don't believe this. Here are all of the things that are wrong with this. And what that means is that we end up defining ourselves by what we're against, not what we're for. And so we know all of these things about what we don't believe about the Spirit of God, but we've got no clue when it comes to defining something positive about His work and ministry. We end up having a negative campaign about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And if you've read the Scriptures, that's not the case. Very quickly, a reaction ends up being an overreaction and unhealthy. And so rather than allowing a reaction to a movement, and look, to be fair, sometimes there are things that have needed to be corrected and have, have been corrected. There are other things which we've just acted out of fear and suspicion and have been a horrible overreaction to what God has been doing. But we need to allow the Scriptures to speak. We need to allow God to speak for Himself on how He has revealed us, not just react to something that we are uncomfortable with or don't like. You know, it's a misunderstanding to think that the charismatic and the Pentecostal church have cornered the market on the Holy Spirit. That's not true, right? Every single church 
no matter what tradition, tribe, denomination or background they're from, every single church has got room to grow in this area. What we've all done is just emphasise our favourite bits about the Spirit's ministry and neglected other parts. For us, we love to talk about the Spirit's ministry of purifying us, making us holy and more like Jesus. Right For the charismatic, the Pentecostal movement, it's more about the, the outward signs of power of gifts. But every single church, no matter what its tradition, no matter what its tribe, has got room to grow in the area of the ministry of the Spirit, us included. And so my hope is, as we walk through this series, a number of things. The first is that we would know God better. As we study the Holy Spirit, we will know God better because God is not revealed to us simply as Father and Son, but Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As we study the doctrine of the, of the Holy Spirit, J.R. Packer says that where the Spirit is studied, He will be sought after. And where He is sought after, there will be spiritual vitality. And my hope is that that will happen for us over the next seven weeks. You know, I remember a while ago we preached a series on prayer. And I was really expectant that God would radically change the practice of prayer in our church. That we would have hundreds of people at prayer meetings, that we would put a post up on Facebook and say, there's a prayer meeting and every single person in church would be there. And we did this five-week series on prayer and we preached our guts out and nothing happened. And I was really disappointed. And we've been wrestling to try and create a culture of prayer ever since at Anchor. And so as I come to this series, I feel slightly scarred by my past experience of having preached on something and seeing such little fruit at the end of it. And so I've had to preach to my own heart this week. Now, this is the Word of God. And this is the Spirit of God. And He is in the business of transforming lives. And my expectation is that as we preach through this series, there would be things that would change, that God might shine a light on areas that we need to grow in, that God might reveal to us more of who He is, His character, that we would grow in our daily dependence on the Spirit of God. I'm hoping for change. I'm hoping for a deeper experience of the Spirit in your life, in my life, in the life of our church. Not just informed heads, right? but that we would live this out, that we would experience God. And I'm hoping that this series will be intensely practical for you, that you would know what this looks like on Monday morning to live in the Spirit, to live a life of dependence on the Spirit of God. So I'm hoping we would know and experience and apply this stuff as we walk through it. And so the question I want to ask this morning is who is the Holy Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? I'm going to lay a foundation this morning that we're going to build on over the next six weeks. And we've got some exciting practical things coming up in the, in the next couple of weeks. But the question this morning is, who is the Holy Spirit? Now, before I even attempt to answer that question, I need to say this. As I preach on this topic of who is the Holy Spirit, I'm speaking about something, if I'm honest with you, that I don't completely understand, that I don't completely get. And that's okay. Right? Because if, if we can put God in a box and say, I've, I've got him completely figured out, then either we've missed something or either this is a God who's not entirely worthy of our worship. Because God is big. He is an infinite God and He is bigger than our finite minds and capacities have to comprehend. 
And so as we talk about the very nature and character of God, there are things about Him that we will just not get fully. We can know God truly, but we will never know God fully. And so as we come to talking about the Holy Spirit, I realize that I'm speaking about things that have an element of mystery to them. Additionally, I think this is hard because when we talk about the Father and the Son, we've got very practical, tangible, real examples of of those words. Like we can look around and see fathers. We can look around and see sons and children. We've got tangible examples of those things. But when we come to the Spirit of God, to the Holy Spirit, we, we struggle because we don't have something tangible that we can touch and look at as an example of how God has revealed himself. And so there is mystery to this. Who is the Holy Spirit? Well, firstly, we call him the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And that means that he is pure. He is perfect, morally perfect. That he shares the attributes of God's character in perfection. Holy does not mean that he is um, so set apart and removed that we cannot know him or experience him. And secondly, we call him the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Or if you've got an old translation of the Bible, maybe the King James or, I don't know, does the new King Jimmy still use Holy Ghost, Brian? It doesn't. It's, it's, It's updated. But if you've got an old version of the Bible, it might say the Holy Ghost. Um, That's how you're supposed to read it in, in old English. But the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. And when we read that, I think what we think automatically, we think that means immaterial. But when the Scriptures use the word spirit, they don't mean ghost-like or immaterial. What it's speaking of is wind or breath, that the Spirit is God's breath breathed out with force. You know, we get a whole bunch of English words that, that are derived from this original word in the Greek. It's... it's um. Words like pneumonia with our lungs or words like a pneumatic tool, like a pneumatic nail gun, right? It operates by forcing air with pressure, with force to drive that nail into the timber. And so when we talk about the Spirit of God, we're not talking about something immaterial and ghostly. We're talking about an active force, right? So the Holy Spirit is not some distant immaterial force, but the active, pure power of God. That's what we're talking about. And I want to just tell you two things about the Spirit of God this morning. The first is that He is a person, and the second is that He is divine. And I want to take you to a passage of Scripture where we see both of those things. So if you've got a Bible, head over to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, we're just going to read the first five verses. If you don't have a Bible, the verses will be on the screens behind me. But we get to Acts chapter 5, a season in the life of the early church where the church has, um, has been growing quite rapidly and significantly because of the power of the Holy Spirit that has been poured out. And the church has this communal experience of what it looks like to live together as a family of missionaries sent to the city of, of Jerusalem to make much of Jesus. And there is persecution and people are losing their jobs and there are people who are being saved into the family of of believers who have needs. And so a lot of the church are beginning to share their wealth and possessions to care for each other. And then we get to this passage in Acts chapter 5, verse 1 and read this. 
But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and bought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, what is, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down, breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The problem here is not so much that Ananias has not given all of the money to the church. Right? That's not the problem. The problem here is the problem of deception and lying. And you'll notice here that Peter calls Ananias out for lying to the Holy Spirit. Now, a lie is a statement that attempts to mislead a person. That's what a lie is. You cannot lie to your chair that you're sitting on. I cannot lie to the pulpit. You cannot lie to a rock. Lying can only occur, you can only seek to mislead a being or a person. And so when Peter says you've lied to the Holy Spirit, he's implying here that the Spirit of God is a person, is a being. Now, not a person like you and I are like people, right? but a person in the sense that the Father and the Son are persons, that they have a personality, if you will like, that they are distinct beings. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. You know, too often we call the Holy Spirit an it. If you've ever heard that before. You know, it came, it did this. And sometimes, to be fair, that's just a slip of the tongue that may not be reflective of our theology and understanding of the Spirit of God, but sometimes what it reveals is a deep misunderstanding about who the Spirit is. The He is not an it. He is a he, that this is not the force from Star Wars. This is a person to be known. The scriptures use all kinds of relational language to talk about the spirit and his ministry. It says that he hears, that he speaks, that he witnesses, that he convinces, that he leads, that he guides, that he teaches, that he commands us, that he forbids us to do things, that the spirit of God has desires that he gives speech, that he gives help, that he intercedes for us between the Father and that he can be grieved. That he can be grieved. In Ephesians 4 verse 30 it says this, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. You can only grieve a person. We, we, we do that all the time, don't we? Someone we love passes away, we grieve. If someone says something that um, has hurt us or offended us, there can be grief and sadness. The Holy Spirit experiences that same emotion. It's the same emotion that God the Father experienced in Genesis 6-6 where he saw people, the people that he lovingly created, turn their back on him and reject him. It says that he is grieved and even that he regrets what he's done. 
Well, it's the same grief that Jesus experiences as he hears of the news of his friend Lazarus who has died. And it says in the shortest verse in the Bible that Jesus wept, experienced grief, and the Spirit of God can be grieved. Now, an impersonal force cannot be grieved. Only a person, only a being can experience an emotion of grief. Or check out how John talks about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14. If you want to do a good in-depth study of the work and ministry of the Spirit, read what's called the Upper Room Discourse from John 13 to John 17. And you'll see a beautiful interplay of the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, our triune God working. But this is what John says of the Holy Spirit in John 14, verse 16. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus promises that after he goes, he's going to send another helper, another helper, which implies that he... Christ is the first helper and the Spirit of God is the second helper in the way that Jesus was similar. He he is similar as a helper in the way that Jesus was before him. That he is an advocate, someone who would stand beside you, someone who would encourage you, someone who would mediate the presence of Christ as he leaves and ascends to the Father's right hand to comfort you, to be with you. Now, that is not something that an impersonal force can do. Like you're not comforted by gravity. You're only comforted by a person. So the Holy Spirit is not an it. He is a he. The Holy Spirit is not anonymous. But oh, how he feels anonymous sometimes in our lives and in our church where we neglect his ministry. You know why this is important? The Holy Spirit is a he and not an it. That's vitally important because the Holy Spirit is the presence of Christ living in you. He is God's presence inside of us. The Holy Spirit is not like coffee, right? You drink coffee and you do lots of things fast. and right. He's not like this, this force that acts upon you. He is the presence of Christ in you. You get this, you are, if you're, a, if you're a Christian, if you love Jesus, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. He's picking up on this Old Testament language of the presence of God, which was said to dwell in the temple, but not just in the temple anywhere, in the very core of the temple, in the Holy of Holies. It's where God's presence was said to dwell. And he says, you Christian who have faith in Jesus are a temple of the Holy Spirit, that God, his spirit, his presence dwells in you. That's phenomenal. That we have the spirit of God living inside of us. You know what one person, the high priest, experienced for one day in the whole calendar of Israel's life, the day of atonement, He would walk into the Holy of Holies and into the presence of God for a moment and then leave before the presence would consume him. What what one person on one day of the year experienced, we experience every single day. 
the presence of God in us. It means that you're not alone. It means that the Spirit of God is with you. Loneliness and fear subside in the light of the truth that God is with us. You have a friend, a counsellor, an advocate. Even if there is no one else for you, God is. He's with you. It's vitally important to get to get to grasp. The other reason this is vitally important is that the Spirit of God is not a force that can just be manipulated. Or you remember the occurrence of Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8? He's hanging out with the disciples and he witnesses Peter and the other disciples performing miracles of healing and, and exercising of demons and, um, and signs and wonders. And he comes up to Peter and he says, Peter, Peter, how much, how much does it cost for me to buy the power of the Spirit? And Peter rebukes him and says, you, you can't buy this, right? The, the Spirit of God is not simply an impersonal force that, that you use, that you manipulate for your purposes. You know, I, I believe that the Spirit of God is grieved by many who would turn him into nothing more than a magic wand to be waved for their own glory. When he is a personal presence in us to glorify Christ and to point us to Christ for his glory and not our own. This is vitally important. And it might seem basic and foundational, but without this truth, that the Spirit of God is a person that you can know, he is a person that you can experience, if you remove the personhood of the Holy Spirit, we, we would never experience God. We don't get to experience God. We would just know Him. The whole of the Christian life is a life that is lived in the Spirit. And so you take this away, you lose a significant part of who we are as Christ's people. So that's the first thing. The Spirit of God is a person. He's a being to be known and related to. The second truth is that the Spirit of God is divine that he is equally as much God as the Father and the Son. Have a look at what Peter says here in the end of verse 4. Acts chapter 5, verse 4. He says, Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Saying to Ananias that, that you have withheld some of this money and lied to us about it. Why is it that you have done that? You have not lied to man, but to God. Now, hang on a second, verse 3, Peter said, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. And here in verse 4, he's saying, you've lied to God. Peter uses these terms interchangeably because he believes that God is one, revealed to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, that takes us into the territory of what we call the Trinity, that tricky, difficult understanding of the Christian teaching the Trinity, that we believe that God is one being revealed in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we don't believe in three gods. It's not like there is one God who is the Father and there is another God who is the Son and there is another God who is the Spirit because that's polytheism. Nor do we believe in a God who simply changes masks, like he puts on his Spirit mask and then he puts on his Son mask and then he puts on his Father mask. Now, we believe in one God, 
in three persons. We believe that one plus one plus one equals one. Now that's horrible mathematics, but it's good theology. And I realize that that is a mind bender and probably hard work for Sunday morning, particularly if you haven't had coffee yet, but let me, let me try and paint a picture for you of what this is like. And this is a limited earthly description of something that is ultimately indescribable. When you play the piano, and I don't play the piano, um, so the musicians here might want to correct me at the end of this illustration, but when you play the piano, in particular, let's take the C major chord, for example. The C major chord is made up of three notes. It's called a triad chord. It's made up of the root note, which is a C, It's made up of a note that is a third higher than the root note, which is an E, and then a fifth higher, which is the G. So C, E, and G, those three notes played together make up the chord, a C major. Now, a note is a sound, and a chord is a sound. And so they're of the same essence, they're of the same stuff. And when you play a chord together, You have simultaneously in one moment three sounds that make up one sound all at the same time. Now, I kind of think that works. It's much better for me than the ice and the gas and the liquid illustration. It was much better than the the wedding band with three different rings that are one ring because none of those things can coexist at the same time. But it seems to me that when you play a chord, Those three notes coexist at the same time. It's all of the same essence. It's all of a sound. Now, the musicians might want to correct me and say, well, maybe it's actually not the same sound. Maybe it's actually a fourth sound altogether or a combination. Or maybe you want to say, well, actually, it's a C note and you're just hearing the note more distinctly than the other two. We could get technical. And yes, it breaks down. But we're trying to describe something that is indescribable. Like I said earlier, if we could just put God in a box and say, yes, I I completely understand him. We've either missed something or God is not entirely worthy of our worship. This is a God who is infinite. This is a God who is beyond our limited capacity to completely understand. But we believe that God reveals himself to us in the form of one being, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here's why this understanding is really important. Intrinsic to the character of God is the fact that God is a God of love. He's a God of love. God is the greatest, most beautiful being that has ever existed. And if he is the greatest, then he has to be perfect. Cannot have any character flaw in him. And if he is perfect, then he must be loving. And so God is a perfect, loving God. And in order for him to be a perfectly loving God, that means he must have an object to love. Without an object to love, God cannot be perfect. Without without having to create something to love, God lacks something in himself. He cannot be perfect. And so there has to be a community of love that has existed for all eternity for God to be truly a God of perfect love. The Father loved the Son. The Son loves the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Father. C.S. Lewis calls it the dance of the Trinity. 
that there is a community of love for all eternity in the Godhead. Now without that, God cannot perfectly be a God of love. We call that a Trinitarian understanding of God, the Unitarian understanding of God, that there is one God and one being, means that God cannot possibly be a God of perfect love. The God of Islam and the God of Judaism is a Unitarian God, and it means that God lacks something. But the God of the Scriptures is a the God of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity, diversity, and unity together in perfect love. This is a vitally important doctrine for us to understand. And so we affirm that the Holy Spirit is divine, that He is as much God as the Father and the Son. Holy Spirit shares a bunch of attributes with the character of God. Firstly, He is eternal. In Hebrews 9.14, it says this, How much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offer himself out without blemish to God? The spirit of God is eternal. He is uncreated. He has no beginning and no end, just like the Father, just like the Son. Secondly, the Holy Spirit is all-knowing. 1 Corinthians 2.10 says this, These things God has revealed to us through the spirit, for the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. The spirit of God is all-knowing. He is, to use the theological word, omniscient, just like God. He is not limited in time. He is not limited in knowledge. He is God. And when we make that statement, we stand in a long line of historic faith that affirms that truth. You know, there is much that divides the the banner of Christian in our world today. But on this issue of the divinity of Christ and the spirit of the doctrine of the Trinity, the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, the Pentecostal Church, the Reformed Church, the Protestant Church, whatever banner you want to put on it, by and large agree on this truth that the spirit of god is divine that he is god now this is super important for us to get and it might feel basic again but without these foundations in place things down the track are going to fall apart this is crucially important because the spirit of god is to be worshiped along with the father and the son we cannot relegate the ministry of the spirit to something that is insignificant he is the third person of the Trinity, not the third wheel of the Trinity. Right? It's not like this is about the Father and the Son and the Spirit is just tagging along for a good time. Okay? He is God. And because He is divine and He's all-knowing and He is eternal, He shares these attributes of God. It means that He is powerful. The Spirit of God is powerful. If he is simply just an impersonal force, then that power is limited. It has a capacity that has a beginning and an end. But the Spirit of God is divine and is powerful. And as we are going to see as we unpack this series, the power of the Spirit of God works through us. So we are a conduit for the power of God in our lives, in our church, in our city. Additionally, We only experience community 
that only becomes a value for us because we are people who have been made in the image and likeness of a God who has existed in the community of the Spirit for all eternity. And so the value that we have of community is grounded on this foundational truth that the Spirit of God is divine. This is the community that the Spirit creates by His power. Now naturally, as, as you think about who the Holy Spirit is, you might ask the question, well, do you have the Holy Spirit? Have you received the Holy Spirit? I think it's a good question, but I think it's probably the right question asked in the wrong way. Because the Holy Spirit is the gift of faith in Christ Jesus. This is what it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now when they heard this, that is, after Peter has proclaimed the good news of the gospel in Jerusalem, the very first sermon preached by Peter under the power and influence of the Holy Spirit. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and as a result of that, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the question is, have you received Christ? Because the Spirit of God is the gift of God as a result of faith in Jesus. You cannot receive the gift of the Holy Spirit outside of knowing Christ. So the question is, have you received Christ? Have you received the forgiveness of your sins? In Galatians 3 verse 2, Paul asks the church a question. He says, let me ask you only this. And then he goes on to ask him a number of questions, not just one. But the first one he says is, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? You see, you cannot earn the gift of God. You cannot earn the grace of God. You cannot earn the Spirit of God. He is given as a gift for those who have had faith in Christ, who have heard the gospel and received forgiveness. And the gift is not an object, an impersonal force or power. The gift is a person, the person of the Holy Spirit that you might know God and experience God and be reconciled in relationship to the Father. So the question is, have you received Christ? My guess is there would be many here this morning who are living in a way that would grieve the Holy Spirit, that would grieve God. Living as if he doesn't exist, living ignoring his presence and power. The scriptures call it sin. But many of us have rejected God altogether, setting ourselves up as God of our own lives, and the scriptures tell us that that causes a fracture and a break in relationship that only Christ in the gift of the Spirit reconciles and brings us back to experience the relationship that we were created to experience with God. And so friends, the question isn't, do you have the power? The question is, do you have Christ? For he is the one. He is the one who not only redeems and reconciles, but he is the one who gives you the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
Sometimes the question is asked, do you have the Holy Spirit? And it means, have you got lots of power in your life? And maybe we need to flip that question as well and ask, not how much of the Holy Spirit's power do you have, but how much of yourself have you surrendered to the Spirit of God? Are you living in step with the Spirit? In Romans 8, the ministry of the Spirit is to confirm that we are children of God. This is what it says in Romans 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. One of the significant roles of the Spirit, the ministry of the Spirit, is to remind you that you're a child of God, to remind you that you've been adopted into his family. But so often we live our lives as if we're spiritual orphans with no heavenly father. And so have we allowed the ministry of the Spirit to penetrate our lives to confirm for us, yes, you're a child of God. You're a child of God. Despite that sin, you're a child of God. That the Father loves you. Friends, the Spirit is at work in us, transforming us, helping us see our identity in Christ, our gospel identity. The question is, have we surrendered ourselves to him? Not so much how much of the Spirit's power have we got, how much of the Spirit's presence we've got, those things are true. But how much of ourselves are we willing to surrender to his work? And my hope is as we explore this series over the next six weeks, that that would increase, that we would continue to come to God and say, God, I give you my all. Would you work Would you confirm these truths to me? I surrender everything that I have. And maybe today you could do that for the first time. Say, you know what, God, I have been living in outright rejection and rebellion of you. I do not know your presence. I do not experience relationship with you. Would you forgive me by the finished work of Jesus on the cross, reunite me and fill me with your spirit. As Peter says in Acts chapter two, repent, Be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Church, we're going to respond to this God now, and we're going to experience Him. We're going to experience His presence. That is something that we do not just here in church, not just when we sing, but in all of life. And we're going to do that in two ways. As we worship God through the Lord's Supper, a reminder of who Christ is and what He has done in shedding His blood in giving his life that we might have access to the Father, that we might receive the deposit of the Holy Spirit and we're going to worship him in song. And so I'm going to pray, invite the band to come up now and we're going to do just that. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you're a God who has revealed yourself to us as the perfect, loving, triune God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. God, we pray that you might help us have a better picture of who you are. Not something that is demonstrated by our reactions, 
but something that the authority of the scriptures reveals to us. Would you help us to know you? Would you help us to know your spirit? That we get to experience you. Would you shape us, change us, and transform us? We ask this in the strong name of Jesus, by the power of the spirit. Those who agreed said, amen.